This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, helping you unlock money you didn't know you had. Members-only discounts that can save you tons. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. With all the news about nursing shortages and emergency room closures, we'll tell you about Toronto's virtual ER. And one week after the horrific attack on writer Salman Rushdie, former Ontario Premier Bob Ray recalls the 1992 Toronto Gala that helped him emerge from hiding. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. More than 10,000 Canadians received a medically assisted death in 2021, a 32% increase over the previous year. In other words, 3.3% of all deaths in Canada that year were assisted deaths. According to the third federal annual report on MAID, the rate was highest in B.C. and Quebec. U of T law professor and expert Trudeau Lemons says it's remarkably fast that parts of Canada have surpassed rates in Belgium and the Netherlands, where it's been in place for over two decades. Among the other findings, more men than women received assisted death. The average age was 76 and 65 percent had cancer. Heart disease and stroke were cited in 19 percent of cases, followed by chronic lung diseases. 81% of written applications for MAID were approved. Unvaccinated COVID-19 patients put a $61 million avoidable burden on Alberta's health care system during the fourth wave, according to a study out of the University of Alberta. In the period of four months, unvaccinated people, mostly aged 50 to 79, accounted for more than a 1,000 potentially avoidable ICU bed days and $61 million in excess health care costs. The study found 21% of the total annual provincial budget for ICU services was used for unvaccinated patients over the course of the study period. 80% of people who could benefit from a hearing aid don't get one. That's Barbara Kelly with the Hearing Loss Association of America announcing that U.S. regulators have finalized a long-awaited rule that's expected to allow some 30 million Americans to buy hearing aids without a prescription beginning this fall. It follows years of pressure from medical experts and consumer advocates to make the devices cheaper and easier to get. Experts say untreated hearing loss can contribute to cognitive decline and depression in older people. Current costs for hearing aids, including the visit with an audiologist, range from 1400 to 4700 U.S. Here in Canada, they cost between $1,000 and $4,000 per ear. One of Canada's most active World War II veterans has died at 98. Alex Pollowin has spoken over 200 times in classrooms in Ottawa over the past 20 years, 
because he believes everyone should know the history of the Second World War. Alex was just under 20 when the war ended. Following the war, he retired from the Royal Canadian Navy and found his calling working in sales and insurance. Along with his many war medals, Alex has a street named after him in Ottawa. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week, the Ford government unveiled measures designed to take pressure off the health care system. Meanwhile, most people don't know about one innovation that's been in place for more than a year and a half. The major Toronto hospitals have banded together to offer a virtual emergency department. Emergency may be a bit of a misnomer because it is to be used to address urgent but not life-threatening conditions. I got the details from Dr. Justin Hall, Deputy Chief of Emergency at Sunnybrook Health Sciences. It's not the emergency departments that we would all know from being in person. It's one of the things that has come out of the pandemic as a way of trying to help provide access to patients in a timely manner while preserving that quality of care when we know that our departments are are quite uh, busy with many patients who do need to be there in person. I guess uh, actual emergency departments are also overrun with people who don't have to be there but don't really have any other place to go to get care, right? Our emergency departments certainly are are uh, busy these days. We are seeing very high volumes of patients who have either had deferred care during the pandemic or who haven't been able to get timely care. And so we are one of the only places that is open 24-7. And so this is a way that we're able to see some of those patients that might have otherwise come in person to see us in a different format. It makes it uh, easier for them often because they're able to be seen more quickly. They can be seen at a distance and they can be seen in uh, from the comfort of their own home in many cases. So it's uh, just another form of virtual medicine. It is another form of virtual medicine. One of the benefits of this, however, is that any patient who comes and, and sees us through this means does get to see an emergency physician who works in one of our partner hospitals. So they have that level of expertise around acuity and they certainly know how to navigate the system for any additional tests or management that might be required or that you might have expected if you attended in person. What conditions is this appropriate for? It's good for many different conditions, really. And and I will say it's also an opportunity for patients who are just uncertain as to whether they need to come to an emergency department, whether they may be able to wait a few extra days to see their own primary care provider or whether they could go to a walk-in. So we do see things like infections, so urinary infections, skin infections, for example. We have lots of patients who come to see us with questions about COVID or about the COVID vaccine and certainly now with uh, COVID uh, medication treatments as well. Uh, We see patients who are just concerned that they've had potentially an exposure to someone else who has had COVID and to answer questions around that as well. Is there any danger that people won't go to emergency with things they really need to, like heart issues or something like that? It's a very good question. We do see lots of patients who might have chest pain, for example, or abdomen pain. These are two conditions that are a little bit harder, certainly in a virtual environment. And so one of the things, uh, there is always a risk, certainly. One of the things that we do, however, is we are able to see these patients quite quickly. We are able to triage them, and we do have a team of skilled experts who's able to look through the reason why a patient is booking an appointment with us. And in some cases, we direct these patients quite quickly to in-person 
person care rather than having them wait. I don't think a lot of people know about this. Yeah, it's a, you know, one of the challenges we've experienced, and I think you've actually sort of highlighted that in the question, is it, it's been hard to communicate with patients during a pandemic and to let them know of this new opportunity. We certainly have been able to share this through our social media channels and certainly through some uh, media coverage as well. We are open 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Mondays through Friday, and then we are open Saturdays, Sundays as well from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. currently. We're looking at ways to expand these hours and and coverage. We've had a significant uptake by patients and very high satisfaction reported across the network as well. How many doctors do you have on at once? So at any given time, there's one or two doctors that are seeing patients, and then we have those who are helping to triage the patients and who are registering the patients in the background. So there are a limited number of of patient appointments on any given day, um, but we are looking at ways that we can expand that. As you're probably familiar, we also have challenges with respect to HR in person these days. So we are trying to balance where's the best place to see patients and ensure that we have sufficient coverage within our in-person departments as well as virtually. Do you have any sense of how many patients you see a day or a week? Yeah, so uh, we do see approximately 25 patients a day on average. How does that compare to what, say, you would see at Sunnybrook in the in the uh, real-life emergency department in a day? We see on average about 160 patients a day currently in person. So this is just a very small percentage of that. It is a small percentage. It was initially started with some pilot funding through Ontario Health and the support of our own hospital as a way to provide safe care for patients who actually had fear of coming in during the pandemic. This initially was a way of trying to encourage patients actually to at least speak with a physician and then receive some guidance as to whether they should come in person or whether their care may be able to be managed virtually. And so this Initially, as a six-month pilot, we've now been running and had multiple uh, iterations to this and additions in terms of the types of services that we can provide here. Again, your assessment of having 25 patients a day. What we're able to do for those patients, approximately 80% of them do not need to come in person. And so we are saving a lot of patients from waiting potentially for many hours in our in-person departments. And we are able to offer them care such as uh, getting blood work if necessary at an outpatient setting. We're also able to offer them different imaging if needed for their clinical presentation or uh, prescriptions that might be there or referrals for other specialists that they might be waiting for, for example. But is is that enough to make a dent in in the kind of shortages we're experiencing? It's a good question. I I think it is making an impact, certainly for those patients that we are seeing. And I would, I'd be very happy. And I know our our teams uh, would like to expand this. We'd like to have consistent hours, seven days a week. We'd like to expand the number of hours and the number of appointments that we're able to offer. And I think one of the things that would enable us to do that is ensuring that we have consistent funding and, and the support of the community behind us. Dr. Justin Hall, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Justin Hall. You can access the online portal at torontovirtualed.ca. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, last week's terrible attack on writer Salman Rushdie reminds us of the decades-old Iranian fatwa calling for his death and the price of free speech. 
You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Please join with me in welcoming to our country, to our province, and to our pen benefit, a very special surprise guest, Mr. Salman Rushdie. That's a clip of Margaret Atwood introducing author Salman Rushdie, who was greeted with thunderous applause at a Toronto pen gala back in 1992. It was a momentous occasion that helped him emerge from hiding following Ayatollah Khomeini's death threat against him. Then-Premier Bob Ray was one of the first politicians to meet and greet Rushdie publicly, appearing on stage with him. I spoke to Ambassador Ray after the horrific attack on Rushdie last week. What was your reaction to the attack on Salman Rushdie last week? Well, like almost everyone, I, I was horrified. As you know, I, I, I met Salman many years ago, soon after the fatwa. And, and like a lot of people, I, I had uh, felt that perhaps it was uh, no longer, he's, his life was no longer in danger. But I think it's clear now that uh, he, he clearly was at risk and it's a, a terribly sad thing. Let's go back to that day in 1992, and it was shortly after that fatwa. The exhortion to kill him was put in place by the Ayatollah, and um, there was this extraordinary pen gala here in Toronto, and you were the premier, so tell me about it. Well, before that event, I got a call at home from uh, Michael Ignatieff, who lived in London at the time, was a friend of, of Salman's. And he said that uh, there was this idea of having a pen, a pen gala and, and that Salman would come to it. But they were facing a problem because the commercial airlines would not allow him to fly on their planes. And so and that included Air Canada, by the way. I mean, the Canadian Airlines, British Airways, everybody just said, no, we don't. We, it's too much of a of a risk. So uh, we had to arrange for him to get a private flight, which a number of people worked on. Uh, and that was, that was allowed to happen. And uh, he made it to, uh, to Toronto. I met him in Toronto. I had a great meeting with him at a, someone's house. Uh, and then he said, well, would you come to the gala? I said, of course, I'm coming to the gala. He said, would you, would you meet me there? I said, yes, of course, I'll meet you there. I'll shake your hand. We'll do whatever we need to do. So um, it was a, it was, as I recall, it was a Monday night, and it was uh, quite, quite, quite a moving and emotional experience for uh, for everybody involved. Well, I can tell you, even for the audience, I was in the audience. I was not working that night. I was just there as a private person, and I remember it was before we carried cell phones and stuff. And I remember. First of all, being overwhelmed, but then sort of scrambling over a huge crowd trying to find a payphone to call in. So he was suddenly brought out on stage and, and it erupted in a standing ovation. Now, uh, let me ask you this. Did, did you ever think that you were in danger by meeting him like that? No, I didn't. And I still don't. 
But I mean, since that time, a great many people have met him. I felt that the uh, this notion that somehow uh, we should all uh, give in to the fatwa and, and join in the isolation of a great writer was was a terrible mistake. And that I felt that, that if I started it, the ball rolling by having such a public meeting, which we, we knew would get a lot of publicity, uh, that that would encourage other leaders to meet with him, which, which is what happened. Uh, Bill Clinton eventually met with him. John Major met with him. And then just then really that there was no longer a sense that, uh, you know, heads of government shouldn't, shouldn't be associating themselves or meeting with, uh, with Salman Rushdie. So that was very helpful to him and for the cause of free speech. Uh, have we just been complacent thinking that this was all over? When you think about how fundamental free speech and free freedom of expression is to uh, our way of life, uh, I, I don't think we can ever afford to be complacent. And when I do my work now at the UN, it's a, it's an issue that's front and center for uh, for the world. I mean, there are many, many people. Uh, in fact, there are millions of people who are locked up and, and not able to express themselves because of their ethnicity or their background or their, their beliefs or whatever. It's, it's, uh, it's, you know, freedom is a highly contested idea in the world today. Salman Rushdie, he's actually, when you read what he's written, he's not actually anti- any religion in particular, he's he's not a he's not a, a religious person himself, but he's against hypocrisy and he's against dictatorship, and that's that's what he's objecting to. Speaking of his work, I guess one good side effect of this is sales of his books have gone up. Well, that was exactly what one would expect. I mean, I think it's important for people to <coughs> to read Salman Rushdie. Uh, Margaret Atwood said. On Twitter this week, and I think it's quite right. She said, "If you if you want to pay tribute to Salman Rushdie, then read go, go out and read what he writes because he's a remarkable writer." Uh, uh, I've been rereading Midnight's Children uh, this last week, and it's a remarkable book uh, about uh, India, Pakistan, uh, the the moment at midnight when independence was declared for both countries, and the, the meaning of that for uh, for the world. And it's 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 a novel that recreates so much in a in a remarkable way that you realize how how uh, yes he's provocative and how funny he is and and he's, he's he's a remarkable writer. Anything else you want to leave us with? Freedom requires eternal vigilance, and I think that's something that's been reinforced for all of us today. Bob Ray, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Good to talk to you. That was former Premier and current UN Ambassador Bob Ray talking about writer Salman Rushdie. Rushdie is recovering from life-changing injuries sustained after he was attacked on stage in Chautauqua, New York. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. 
Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.